0: Hello, hello, and welcome to Millions of Screens. I'm producer Leo Garcia, joined via Zoom by TV Awards editor Libby Hill and TV Deputy editor Ben Travers. Today, we're going to be talking about a bunch of stuff, but really, we've been in isolation for a year, guys. How are you guys uh, feeling? Uh,
3: who can tell? Who can describe the feelings we feel right now?
2: Not I. This is the
0: millions and millions of little Screens. Can't you shut up? I'm busy.
2: Boy, what a great show.
0: Skipping ahead to the clicker, our recap of the biggest news items from this past week, guys. Last Friday was the finale of Wandavision. I stayed up till midnight. Ben, what ungodly hour did you wake up at to uh, write the review? Uh,
3: 4.30. 4.30 in the morning. Uh,
0: <laughs> I just wanted to get your, here. I just wanted to get your guys' quick hit thoughts on the finale. Uh, you know. What it did successfully, what you think it was lacking, Libby, do you think it crossed the threshold of not just being, in, in your in your words, fluffer for the MCU? You
2: know, I felt I, I. it took me a really long time to figure out how I felt about that WandaVision finale. It left me simultaneously more excited for Doctor Strange, but also less excited for Falcon and Winter Soldier it was much more low-key than I was expecting, which was nice because there was a part of me that really thought that they were going to leave it on this major cliffhanger and then just kind of leave it out there lingering for over a year until we get the film. And while... The next series would pick up a little bit. It obviously wouldn't be as directly um, correlational as WandaVision was. and and that was a that was a huge source of dread for me. I did not want this to just be a hype thing. I think it did do a lot towards deepening both Wanda and Vision as vision as characters within that universe. I don't know if it was necessary. <laughs> like I liked it. I enjoyed what it was doing. I had a good time while I was watching it. I still am not entirely sure if it was great. It had great moments. It did some things really well. It's definitely among the most fun I've had watching TV in 2021, but it's very difficult for me to synthesize all of those things into one coherent, singular thought about WandaVision. Ben, do you have any better insight?
3: Uh, No. (laughs) After, After spending last week writing approximately... 5,000 to 6,000 words about WandaVision. I think.
2: uh, In my defense, same.
3: (laughs) Right. No, of course. And I think that's kind of the thing. It's very hard to distill an opinion of that show into something as simple as what you might expect from other limited series. Like typically a limited series is something that you can have a, a pretty strong, firm opinion about because it's a complete story uh and WandaVision both functions as a limited series and that it tells a very specific story within Wanda's life but it also relies heavily on the surrounding atmospherics and events and um kind of personal attachment that you may or may not have to the characters going in um not to mention there's just so many quibbles as we've already gone over uh, about the construction of the show um and how effective that is. Uh, but in terms of, of the finale, my main impression was that it did what it had to do pretty well. Uh, the, the the way it wraps up Wanda and Vision's arcs uh, is, was somewhat inevitable and pretty satisfying. Uh, the action scene's terrible. I mean, let's well, not, well, not mince words there. I still I am amazed, just amazed, at how often people think that... CGI magic shows are effective in any way whatsoever. I, I like that there's a, a kind of balance between the magic show that was in episode 2, I believe, uh, like the actual magic show that they put on as a sitcom, and it was funny and endearing, and then like actual magic is being wielded at the end of actual magic, in quotes, it's being wielded at the end. So I guess if you want to make that argument, sure, but you still have to go up with a more visually compelling way to do it. But no, like the emotional beats worked very well. Um, save for... And this I won't get into because it's spoiler territory and too complicated, really uh, save for Wanda's penance or larger takeaway from what she'd done. Uh, not, not in her relationships, but in her connection to Westview uh, that, that doesn't work at all. That's a serious problem. <laughs> That's something where you're like, Oh, I, hmm, I don't know if I can get on board with this human being anymore, but sure, let's let's continue forward. Um, that's going to linger for a while, and I'm sure that the MCU will address it in one way or another uh, after gauging everyone's appropriately mixed reactions. So, uh, so, yeah, it's over. I'm very glad that it's over because it was a huge stress on my life, uh, but I'm also very glad to have experienced it with the both of you primarily because... Uh, otherwise it may have broken
0: and i am steadfast in my belief that it was the greatest show of all time <laughs> you nailed it
3: good you show it or more. great show yeah
0: from 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 the jump ask the question nailed it i think i do think that libby something you said that is uh that that interested me was like the series wasn't necessary and i think like i think from the jump i said it always felt like it was ancillary material if you want, to, if you want just this core story, just watch the MCU movies. And then, if you want to do all the reading, you can you can watch Wandavision. And I have a feeling a lot of the shows are going to be that, only because of the amount of time it would take someone to sort of take all of it in all the time.
3: I have a I have a question. I'm sorry. Couldn't you say the same thing about at least a no, third I, of I, the movies? I, I don't I
0: don't disagree. I think I think oh. that I think that, but I do think more recently it's become less like that. I think now, now the movies are starting to tie, especially as uh, what I think is going to be some of the fun of this next phase is characters from their own movies coming together, which were always sort of the, the more fun aspects of a lot of comic book stories, like team ups. So, so when you get a movie where like, hey, it's Captain America and Black Widow on the road. It's Thor and uh, Hulk on another planet. Like these are like that's sort of the core of like yeah, I know you hate it. That that was the core of like what <laughs> what makes a lot of fun comic book stories, like, hey, let's put these two people together and see what happens. It's kinda of how you build sitcoms. You're like, let's put these two characters together in a in a plot, in a B plot that don't have anything else to do, they wouldn't normally be in in, in a situation with each other.
2: It's all of that and I think that's a really good point. Um Yeah, the the early phases of Marvel were definitely about, you know putting out all of these outliers. And I say that as someone who, you know, watched, recently watched Iron Man 1, Iron Man 2, and then found this huge relief for the first time sitting down and starting Thor, watching the first five minutes, and there are no Iron Mans, and there are no <laughs> Iron Man villains uh, dressed in Iron Man costumes. And Kenneth Branagh's direction is just such a stark, uh, a no pun intended, a, a stark, difference from John Favreau's direction and it it feels new and exciting and different and I think that was the the joy of when they were really building that out it was like oh let's go to a completely different universe now this is this is going to be different storytelling and I I do appreciate um these little pit stops to pick up all of those characters that that didn't get their own standalone feature films um I am frustrated that one of the people getting a movie is someone who's dead, um, and we still <laughs> haven't gotten that fucking movie. Um, and of course, it's 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 a woman, so um, yeah, it's it's an imperfect it's an imperfect system. Um, but yeah, I, I think it is. I, I think you're exactly right, and I think that is a better way to view these Marvel TV shows than yes, as a fluffer, which was. More direct commentary on how uh, Kevin Feige seemed to be describing the shows, and 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 it, this is a more generous. Um, it's it's the extra reading. You're right. It's the it's the um, appendix, um, you, you can if see, you will, of the Marvel you can, universe.
0: You can easily see a universe where we don't have WandaVision, and there's just a 10 minute or 15 minute prologue to Doctor Strange and the multiverse of madness which showcases wanda becoming the scarlet witch you could also see whatever movie has a subsequent vision in it where there is a prologue to be like here's how this thing happened and that's like and like whether or not it's the same mechanics or not like they're very easy retro fixes that wouldn't require wanda vision as the show to exist
2: and this is the difference between two-hour Marvel movies when this, when, when the franchise begins, and you know, three-hour, three and a half-hour Marvel movies uh, by the end of Phase Four. So, in in some cases, like if it is going to make the movies better, maybe that's okay. If that's going to allow me, shut up, Ben. That's there's a reason you haven't been allowed to talk in like ten minutes. Um, if that's going to make the movies better, so be it. If that's going to make um, more opportunities to diversify the stories that Marvel is telling, so be it. Yeah, it's it's Marvel's world. We're all just living in it, whether we want it to or whether we want to or not. In a way, Marvel is to the world. I mean, I, I imagine that living in this world is very westview and for Ben. Um, he doesn't have a choice. He is trapped here. He's not allowed his own thoughts and feelings about it because he will get screamed down. And uh, yeah, it's just a miserable, horrible existence. And and we're so glad to inflict that upon you, Ben.
0: Speaking of WandaVision, the DGA and PGA's had their nominations announced yesterday for television uh, and WandaVision earned a nom for directing in limited series or TV movie. Uh, Is this the first step in a long road for WandaVision uh, Emmys hopes?
2: Maybe, Leo. Uh, It's complicated. It's always complicated when we're talking about the Winter TV Awards as compared to the Emmys. Uh, I'm not going to go into all of that, but it's specifically weird this year because some of the guilds have decided to ascribe to the Oscars eligibility window. Um, for those of you who don't know, the because of the pandemic, the Oscars extended their eligibility window to through the end of February. Um, some guilds have adhered to that. So while some guilds extended through the 28th, other guilds kept their television eligibility through the end of December, so for those guilds, Wandavision was not, or for the for those groups, because it, it, it is like the PGA and then the Golden Globes, I believe, Wandavision wasn't eligible. It 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 pre- it debuted in January. For the others, it was really getting into the heart of the of the season so the fact that it was able to crack the dga i think is significant it is a weakened year i mean last year if you look at the dga nominations it was succession and i think three game of thrones it was very uh, stiff batch of contenders so i i think it's it's significant that it got in there it tells me that people within the industry are watching they are responding and i mean if you look at it Last year, the competition in in dramatic directing was so stiff that you know industry favorite, the Mandalorian, didn't get in. This year, it has, uh, along with WandaVision. It, it's 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 a sign that this Marvel series is on their radar. That it won't necessarily have to fight for legit- legitimacy as much as we kind of expected mandalorian too at
0: the risk of going too big a tangent is it must be infuriating if you're like apple tv plus and oh yeah oh yeah there's just disney disney is does not care about awards and like the mandalorian is is nominated for best drama disney's just
3: employing the same strategy that they always have in that like they don't They know that the awards need them more than they need awards. So they're just going to keep making the shit that everybody loves. And especially in TV, let them come crawling up to him and be like, please let us be part of your wonderful glory and uh, have some of your viewers for our telecasts and events. So
0: can we call it now? Can we call it now the Emmys Best Drama Series, Mandalorian Season 2, not for win, but for nomination, and Best Limited Series, WandaVision? Nominations. I refuse to call that now.
2: Mandalorian will get nominated for Best Drama Series. I can't say that about WandaVision because limited series limited series feels like even be. more of a nightmare yeah. than it has been in recent years. Um, we have a full lineup right now. And not necessarily, not all of them are necessarily good, but we have a full lineup right now. And there are still a few huge huge contenders yet to drop um, that we've seen hide nor hair of so we don't really know if they're going to live up to our perceptions or not i mean and and that's the thing that's the thing about disney is is they are such a high profile they don't have to give out screeners uh they don't have to provide access like we're going to write about them no matter what we're going to write about marvel we're going to write about star wars like they don't have to come and curry favor with us apple tv plus is in a in a (laughs) And, and, and believe me, it, it pains me to say this because this is one of the largest corporations on earth. Apple TV Plus is actually at a stark disadvantage because they don't have the back catalog. And also, they're just not putting out that much new content every year. So they have to really push for the things that they have. The good news for them is that Ted Lasso continues to thrive. It did very well at the Critics' Choice Awards. It won three, including um, the first major notice for Hannah Waddingham. Um, in supporting actress for comedy. Jason Sudeikis won again, the series won. Right now, I think you have to say that Ted Lasso is heading into the Emmys as the comedy favorite. Will definitely get nominated.
0: I wish I kept it in the podcast, but when we were first talking about Ted Lasso in the wake of Schitt's Creek, I remember going, Ted Lasso will win all the comedy awards.
2: You nailed it. You (laughs) nailed it you're you're our you're our special little rube guy <laughs> um that's our special little guy uh
3: question for ruban um do you do you do you think apple really needs a library anymore like do you think that that's a disadvantage now that they have ted lasso season one and every person who's thinking about well i can cancel apple tv plus also has to think can i go
0: a month without watching ted lasso i'm thinking about revisiting myself so maybe maybe that's all you need <laughs> I you think want, they just did that. Just, just leave leave watch Ted Lasso. On once a
2: month. It's also worth mentioning that Ted did very well at uh, PGA and specifically at DGA. PGA got its nomination and DGA, it managed two nominations. Uh, Zach Braff. For Episodic, including <laughs> Zach Braff. So thanks for that, Bill Lawrence, as always. <laughs> Speaking of continued success in the march towards the emmys congratulations to the crown for doing just as well as everyone expected them to do um they did not show up in the dj nominees because no uk shows do as far as eligibility goes we saw the same thing with fleabag we saw the same thing with uh i may destroy you so if you're wondering about that that's what's happening there they did manage a pga award however and they won i think four a lot of Critics Choice Awards, including Josh O'Connor keeps winning, so I guess start readying yourself for that. Uh, he was good this year, definitely buoyed by the by Emma Corrin and the Diana stuff. At this point, I, I think we need to we need to at least fifty percent just ready ourselves for the fact that the Crown is gonna win drama series. It is their best season. In some time, it's never won drama series at the Emmys. It has always been edged out by either Game of Thrones or something more of the moment, like Handmaid's Tale uh, for its first season. And then Succession last year, which was, as we remember, the only good show on television.
3: Remember, perhaps an even uh, more important, Netflix has never won a series Emmy. So they are long overdue to win Best Comedy, drama, or limited series? Yes.
2: Oh, that's right. I always forget that. It's that's such a weird stat. Like it's, it makes no sense whatsoever.
3: It could come um, down to the order in which the awards are announced. If Ted Lasso is going to win comedy and they announce it before best drama, then Apple TV Plus could win a series award to become. Let's see, it would be, I think it would be everybody. It would be Hulu had won one, Amazon mm-hmm. had won one, mm-hmm. Apple TV+, Plus. who are we missing here? I mean, HBO Max would, I guess, lose, but this is their Disney, first year. Disney, so like, Yeah, <laughs> Disney, yeah. Oh, man, Crown versus Mandalorian, let's do it.
0: it. It was nominated for six awards, Libby, and it won, but a lot of those were in dual Categories. Right. It won
2: four of six. Yeah. But yeah. uh the only category the Max it could have won was four, I believe.
0: The Max it could have won was five. Tobias oh. Menzies did not win in supporting yeah. actor, Michael that's K. Williams right. won for Lovecraft Country. Right. That's Hard the to that's argue
2: against Michael K. Williams. Only that's the only
0: category in which it was nominated that did not win. So it essentially nearly swept its its awards.
2: Luckily for the Crown, I will say royal family drama continues to abound. <laughs> At an all-time
0: high. I mean, yeah. you could not have asked for uh, more of a pre-awards boost than... promotion,
2: promotion yeah. potential. So,
0: so on Sunday, uh, Oprah sat down for uh, an, a two-hour uh, interview with uh, Meghan Markle and, and Prince Harry. Uh, it was watched by 17.1 million people, which is... Three times the amount of people that watched the Golden Globes. (laughs) Nearly three times. And And for more on this, I think we have to go to our crown correspondent for yet another edition of Corgi Corner.
1: This week on Corgi Corner, we are not talking about the crown, even though the crown is obviously gonna sweep the Emmys after its great showing during the Winter TV Awards. What we're going to talk about this week on Corgi Corner is how the corgis are probably the only creatures in Buckingham Palace who don't hate Prince Harry and Meghan Markle right now. I kid, I kid, that statement from the Queen shows that she still has a little soft heart for her favorite grandson even if she doesn't believe the recollections of what was said during the famous Oprah interview. The Oprah interview with Harry and Megan happened last Sunday. Uh, it's kind of a throwback situation, sort of a big ticket uh, interview that sit down in, come on, let's face it, that was probably Gail's garden in Montecito. For a nation that's been cooped inside for a year and starved of gossip, it was kind of a wondrous thing um, confirming that a millennia-old racist patriarchal monarchy is, in fact, racist and patriarchal. But still, to that end, 17 million people tuned in. Um, That makes it, you know, kind of like an above-average first-run episode of NCIS. It's good. It's not outstanding. But here's the thing, it could have been better. There's a couple ways that CBS kind of fumbled the rollout of this interview. They didn't simulcast it on both coasts. They showed it on the East Coast first. Us here on the West Coast were left trolling Twitter for tidbits. How many people didn't watch it when it aired at 8 p.m. on the West Coast because of that? I'd say probably quite a few. This is something that CBS does routinely. They do it with the Grammys every year, and it just seems so out of touch and infuriating at this point. There is another way that they kind of biffed the rollout of this. Paramount Plus launched last week. There is, of course, some legal restrictions about what can be shown win. But even if it wasn't shown at the same time, in the same day, they definitely should have advertised the Oprah with Meghan and Harry interview as something as part of the launch package. You get Paramount+, Plus, you get a Watch It. Very simple. They didn't do that. It's pretty curious. So we'll see. We'll see if Oprah's relationship with the duo extends into further interviews down the road. I certainly hope so. And if so, maybe CBS will do a better job of getting it out there. And also, if you're looking for something to do in the interim, go to Vegas and put a couple hundred bucks on that kid being named Diana. All right, guys, that's it for Corgi Corner.
0: Again, that was Anne Donahue, our exec- <laughs> executive ed- editor of, of TV. I realized I didn't say who she was prior to throwing to her. They know, they know,
3: they know, they know. everybody it's knows. It's our
2: favorite segment, it's our favorite segment.
0: Uh, but I, Sorry, no, We don't know what Anne said because she hasn't recorded it yet, but I agree, I agree wholeheartedly with everything she said about uh, the interview on Sunday. Well, guys, as we mentioned up top, uh Friday I think might actually be the one year anniversary of at least Libby and I being out of the office full time. And I think we want to take take a step back and be able to say, what have we learned in this one year, you know, in, in isolation as it were? What has the industry as a whole learned or 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 done uh ben you sort of uh jotted down some thoughts i don't know if if there's a place you specifically wanted to start uh with what with what's changed or what hasn't changed in this weird uh you know pandemic year but maybe is it best just to start with that your one thing that didn't change which is though though the rumors of, of its demise were were mentioned uh variously uh we did not run out of television there were, we never hit a we never hit a brick wall where there was like no more TV. You've reached the end of the line,
3: right? I, I believe we went on the record fairly early on saying that those worries were a bit exaggerated. Um, and admittedly, you know, even even talking about the awards race uh, as we just were, there's there are clear signs of disruption. There's clear signs of of uh, specific shows that were annual events uh, missing from the calendar. Uh, and obviously, I'm only talking about Succession. Obviously, there are probably other ones, but who knows what they are? Because the gaping hole left in my heart from Succession season three not being out yet is uh, unfillable. Uh, I think at least at least until you know whenever HBO gets it to us. So now, where um, I thought
0: you were going there, I thought you said it was filled by Ted Lasso. <laughs> I thought. <laughs> it's only. I mean, let's can not only be filled
3: get crazy by, my, by my monthly binge watches of season one uh, I'm Lasso plus it's, uh, but no, I, I, I do feel like in, especially with how much real world concerns there were, how, how many more things that needed to take priority. Television did become the kind of reliable escapism that it needed to be. There was, there was always something that you could turn to. And we saw that, um, you know, spiral out in a lot of things that were somewhat inevitable, uh, most likely Uh, like the, the the continued collapse of, of lines between television and film were rapidly expedient by the pandemic. When so many movies were premiering on streaming services or VOD, Um, a lot of the questions over, you know, what is film and TV shifted to where they belong, which is, you know, questions of structure and purpose and, Uh, well those two things mainly but um, but yeah I I think that looking back on this last year there's a lot of shows from the early points of of the stay at home orders and and self-isolation that stand out as kind of pandemic trademarks Uh, Tiger King is the running joke Ozark was definitely very big Uh, I believe there was even a period where Flora's Lava was a thing but I'm preferring to forget that that happened um, oh God! But even beyond that, there were still shows. There was still big benchmarks in TV, and um, whether you were spending the, your time rewatching things that you would missed or discovering new content, mm-hmm. the new content was still there, uh, which I think is going to continue. Like we're we're people are back to work; they're churning out. Um, <laughs> the question is whether or not peak TV is over. Uh, and whether whether we'll return to the highs that we were seeing in terms of how much scripted content was produced on an annual basis or if the kind of adjustments that have been made uh, into our viewing tendencies will lead to less content overall even though streaming is thriving.
0: well yeah I, I guess you sort of answered some things that have changed in what didn't the the idea that you know, streaming has thrived, that uh, you know, as you said, content collapsed all to sort of these these streaming services that movies were, you know, being premiering on on the various streaming streamers. But but also the idea of like television kind of became the virtual it, it's always been a water cooler topic, but like now there was a virtual water cooler around like, hey, we're all stuck inside, we're all watching the boys, we're all watching WandaVision, we're all watching the Queen's Gambit. And, and I think was there an aspect where I mean, you link it to the weekly release, which not all those shows were, but the the idea that weekly releases have sort of become the default now in terms of making sure your show is in the conversation for as long a period as possible.
3: Well, they've, they've definitely at least become more accepted or um, experimental in terms of, of who's, who's utilizing them. Like Netflix is still vowing to never do stuff like that, even though it's kind of specific shows that they have weird wonky rights issue with usually overseas stuff that's premiering weekly they'll, they'll kind of dabble in that world um but other streamers especially amazon prime which you know had kind of gone back and forth but mainly leaned heavily on the all-at-once model started experimenting with weekly releases which was really exciting to see and you know you can argue and you wouldn't be wrong that a lot of that was because production had shut down and they didn't have as many shows as they had originally planned to have by that point in the year because the boys was a was a fall release um but you could just as just as well argue that kind of this was bred by success the mandalorian set a standard when it came out on disney plus long before the pandemic well not long before but before the pandemic um And showed that kind of, you know, these models still work. What HBO is doing still works. There's ways to generate a conversation using the weekly release if you have the right plan in place and the right show to go along with it. Uh, And I think that, you know, one thing that we talked a lot about in the pandemic was whether or not we'd see more experimentation from, you know, studios, distributors, from the market in general, uh, simply because they are forced to. Simply because they had to come up with new ways to either make programs or release programs, or deliver entertainment to the various uh, you know platforms that they have at their disposal, and you know we saw that changing a lot with film. We saw that changing a lot with how movies were released and, and when they could come out, and, and what was happening with theaters, and whether or not that adjustment will be a permanent thing. Uh, but you saw it a little bit with TV too, and the stuff you're talking about, the stuff that was still dumped, that still was released all at once, like The Queen's Gambit. Um, there were still distinct moments in time. Like, it, it felt like they lasted, the bigger hits still lasted a bit longer. Like, you could still place that in the calendar when you look back over the last year of, of The Queen's Gambit, was kind of a late year thing. Like, people talked about that for a good month. And, uh, you know, part of it was the discovery. You know, it wasn't a, a widely hyped show, it wasn't a huge event thing that was dropped. Uh, with a huge, with a, a lot of anticipation mounting up to it, it was a discovery thing where people would see it and, and you know tell their friends and word of mouth spread and a conversation was generated. Um, and I, I don't know. I think that that's kind of an exciting element of television. I think we might have been heading back in that direction no matter what. Um, but I do think that big hits, especially perceived hits like Wandavision, uh, will make this a fairly permanent thing will push us toward an era in which a lot of the stuff that worked in the past for networks and distributors will be tried again. Um, and as someone, as you know, who is a fan of weekly releases and thinks they should be implemented more often, uh, as long as you have strong episodic content to go along with that, do it. Like, lean in. It's a great way to experience a story uh, if the story is you know, built to be told that way.
2: I guess to go back and and answer your question to him, uh, not that anyone asked, uh, I would say that um, one of the things that I've noticed hasn't changed within the pandemic is award shows are dying. The pandemic may have have facilitated their their death, but it definitely didn't stop it. And I think that's something that the industry has to take a long and hard look at um, it has to decide what it's trying to accomplish with these award shows and how that changes moving forward, like what it wants to do and uh, and and if it's time to innovate. Um, leading up to the Emmys, even as we agree that the Emmys had a, a remarkably successful virtual show, as much as it can be, but there was still room to do more. There was still more to experiment more, to, to try new things, to try and find a new model that would fit closer with sort of the way we are consuming television now. Now, mind you, I don't know what that is. (laughs) I don't know what or if there is an actual solution to to the awards show viewership problem. But I do know that the last year would have been the time to start trying to find solutions, if there were some. Um, I don't think we saw enough of that. Definitely with the Golden Globes, and we talked about this at length last week, with the Golden Globes, they definitely just tried to substitute Zoom in for everything that they would normally do. I have to say, and while I'm not a huge fan of the awards uh, as is, the Critics' Choice Awards um, actually did a much better job at incorporating Zoom and sort of incorporating pre-taped bits. Um, It wasn't good per se, it was awkward, but a certain amount of that is dependent on resources and you know they're on the cw they didn't get 27 million dollars from nbc um but they had a better understanding it felt of of what was necessary and what was plausible within um within their limited resources and they had clips then they had clips yeah i know you love clips Love
3: the clips they're important
2: Uh, you need
3: to know why you're there in the first place so let's show it exactly but it is i mean it's interesting to be to think about that versus what we saw like networks and studios and distributors do during the pandemic, because it did feel like there was a lot of attempts at innovation to either, you know, make these uh, kind of COVID style zoom TV shows and see if they worked uh, as well as to, you know, like how can we release this differently or how can we, you know, fill the content demands that people have come to expect about expect us Uh, expect from us without being able to produce literally to make as much of the content as we could. And like, you know, money was on the line, jobs were on the line, like things were dire. And the effect of that really pushed people to try some different stuff there. I mean, especially looking at, you know, like late night TV where they, they turned that shit around so quickly And some of them are still operating in the same way they were or a very similar way that they were, you know, after they came back from from those brief hiatuses. Uh, But then to look at the award shows where it's just kind of like, well, we only have to do this once a year. I guess we'll just try the same thing again and see if it happens. That's disappointing. Like, I, I wish some of that urgency would have bled over to, you know, especially the Golden Globes um but to to try to take this year as you know what can we do with it what what are the what are the best possible you know scenarios in terms of our our dreams and experiments and uh you know let's let's get some crazy ideas and if it doesn't work who gives a shit it was a pandemic year like we anything we try to do to entertain people right now should be met with a grain of like a, a grain of appreciation at least uh, but the one thing that wouldn't be met that way is if we don't try anything and that was the stuff that really upset us so um so yeah it's it's weird to see kind of the the stark difference between you know within the same industry i guess who are essentially in terms of just entertaining us trying to do the same thing
0: you touch on a lot there but i think the one thing i think is the way that late night did pivot pretty quickly uh like I don't know about you, Libby, but, like, I miss Seth, Seth's attic. Like, I miss the attic crawl space. Like, I almost feel like the shows were better there and felt, and I understand it's probably less work on him. His show now just seems like his show, but with with Zoom interviews as and occasionally in-person interviews if they're in, in New York and in the building hosting SNL from from a safe distance. But, like, there there's something to the things that change quickly and then we tried to go back to normal. And, Ben, you kind of talk about this, like, the COVID storylines, some of them work and some of them don't, you know, Superstore and, and This Is Us being your examples. But like, I do think that in the late <laughs> night, their version of like the COVID TV shows, the connected, the social distance, the coastal elites, that really worked for them. Like, I think that actually worked really well for almost all of the late night hosts. And I think the, the the them going back to normal while we're still in the pandemic is kind of a misstep. Like Jimmy Fallon being in his relaxed clothes and like sitting on a stool and interviewing someone via Zoom and like it's like it's kinda the tonight show, but it's kinda not the tonight show is worse than both his normal show and Seth doing it from from the attic. You know what I mean? Well I mean Yeah, yeah. I, I understand we're also cross pollinating personalities and and jokes. But like I'm worse I'm just saying worse from like a not production standpoint, but like how it looks standpoint.
2: I think part of that is because the pandemic isn't over. It, yeah. it feels weird. Uh, when Seth was in his attic with the Sea Captain. That's a different that sea, we-
0: sea Captain was his parents' house. Don't oh, confuse. Sorry, sorry, don't sorry. confuse sorry. the characters.
2: Jesus, sorry. <laughs> uh, when Seth was in <laughs> his Let attic. Me. When Seth was in his attic, I I it was weird and it was strange and it was a little bit uncomfortable, but it was super it was uncomfortable but it was very comforting. It was a reminder that things are weird and strange all over. And I found that to be very, I responded very strongly to that. Uh, this is not a normal time. These are not normal things to experience or to live through. And I think that was that was especially true in the last presidential administration, where everything kind of felt like it was falling apart and also on fire. But now still, it, I, I'm finding that as we come up legitimately on, on a year in lockdown, I don't know what normal is anymore. I don't know how to go back. Um, And I'm not entirely sure we should be trying to go back. And so it's very mixed. So when I see these late night shows, you know, resuming some kind of rhythm like they used to have, which I appreciate. People need jobs. They need paychecks. You know, maybe Seth doesn't want to be trapped in his attic for six hours a day, fair. But there is this kind of loss of connection. You feel a little more isolated because you aren't back to a, a faded facsimile of your life. You're still living in the, in the uncomfortable part, in the, in the part that never really got to feel normal. And then there's also that fear of leaving this spot that became close enough to normal that it will be odd to leave it. It's one of the reasons that I really appreciate Superstore and their pandemic storylines because... That is a show that is one of the very rare shows on television, which is dealing with a lower middle class, middle class, lower, middle class, um, earners who had to work straight through this pandemic. We're all very lucky. We've all been working from our home offices, uh, for a year, but there are a lot of Americans who haven't had to do that. So watching Superstore makes me very grateful. Also, it's very funny show. Um, and, and they do these sort of class politics shows very well. I actually, I don't know how Ben feels about this season. So uh, this is, I'm just speaking for myself. And so it has been, it has been very comforting seeing them tackle these issues with, with the light touch that they often have um, when, with, when dealing with stuff that other shows, doesn't, other shows don't touch. Uh, it's not like when This Is Us tries to go hard on race or it, like, they, they, aren't, they aren't fighting above their weight class. Uh, and it shows. It, this, is, this, is, this is the sweet spot for Superstar. Um, I would have been very disappointed if it, they did anything else. And I think shows like that, not shows orchestrated to specifically address the pandemic, but shows that were already built to handle the, the complications of, of real and recognizable life are the ones that I want to see addressing this because they know how they, they're, they're the experts. Going back to what Ben was saying earlier, I don't think peak TV is dead. I think peak TV is delayed. Uh, It's going to take a while to get the machine back up and running. But I do think that when it is, that networks are going to be very... Networks, meaning like streamers and content producers, are going to be very anxious to build up their their backlog again. Because even though they haven't run out of TV, there has to be... You know, they're getting... You're, they're getting through their backstock. We're we're getting through those all those mid season replacements. They only had six episodes for. Um, they are going to need to to up their production season because for all intents and purposes they've they've lost an entire production cycle. Um, I think that we are not suddenly going to be to a point where it's like yeah less TV please. I think we're just going to be running about eighteen months behind until we we get back up. I don't think it's going to be fixed in the forgive the archaic language in the 2021-2022 uh, TV season, but more likely in the 2022-2023, we should be back up and, and and running the way that things were before. Whether it'll meet the specific highs, I don't know, but I think we'll definitely be back up to like 500 new mm. scripted shows per year um, or 500 yeah. scripted shows per year, Wh- whatever, whatever uh, TV mayor. John Landgraf, whatever his numbers were recently. Um, yeah, I, I I just... It's not something that dies. It's not something... I mean, so long as there are new streamers, there will be more content. There will be more shows produced. and And I don't know. We're just still not at that point. I think it is not logical necessarily to assume this is a bubble that will pop um so long as people are making money on it people are going to want to continue making money and continue getting into the game to try and make money unless they're so bad at it they throw billions of dollars into it and still fail in a matter of months
0: which brings us to our next point bad ideas are bad ideas pandemic or not and if you launch a streamer specializing in quick bites where you don't even own the content. Uh, you might be in trouble
2: guys. You will be in trouble
0: guys. Quibi came and went, uh, it launched, it launched inside of the pandemic and died inside of the pandemic. And it kind of blamed the pandemic though. I think we all thought that was, uh, full hearty, uh, and that it was essentially DOA regardless, uh, of a pandemic or not. Um, parting thoughts. Parting shots on Quibi? Party
2: shots. I'm sorry. On Quibi. I don't
3: remember what. Are you t- what is this thing you're talking
2: about? I, I don't forget. know her.
0: Could could those could those billions of dollars been spent uh, better? <laughs> yes. Okay. Cool. We're all in agreement. <laughs> on unequivocal.
3: Yes. I don't give short answers. I don't. I rarely give like clear choices one way or the other but this time i can the answer is yes
2: listen i think most billions of dollars 10%. could be spent better uh but i definitely think quibby's billions of dollars could have been spent better
0: Millions of Screens is a production of Penske Media Corporation, IndieWire, our theme music features excerpts of the classic YouTube video of Bjork Talking About TV and Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. Our editor-in-chief is Dana Harris-Brightson, our publisher is James Israel, and our executive editor is Ann Donahue, and the host of Corgi Corner. Our favorite pandemic TV picks are New Girl, Six, <laughs> six Feet Under, and King of the Hill. IndieWire's Millions of Screens endorses Old Baseball. <laughs> Technically, this was a, this was a butchering of,
3: of the topic because I wanted to go with our current ones, but I couldn't remember what Libby said she was binging
0: right now. You can find us on Twitter at a million screens at Midwest Spitfire, Ben T. Travers, and Leo Jr. Garcia. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play. So leave a review and let us know what you think. This is Ben, Libby, and Leo. I remind you, as always, that you shouldn't let poets lie to you.
1: You shouldn't let
0: poets lie to you. Ain't nothing wrong with a couple of cold brews and a cool (laughs) podcast.
1: (laughs) With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
2: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps) No, Lucky Land Casino,
0: with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.